Welcome to The Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce, separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce, separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable, the divorce services company, and host of this, The Divorce Podcast. In this episode, I was joined by Samantha Baines. Sam is an award-winning comedian, actor and broadcaster, and also the host of the fantastic podcast, The Divorce Social. She has made many notable TV and stage appearances, including The Crown, Call the Midwife and Magic Mike Live. We began by exploring how her separation started off on an amicable footing, but turned sour during divorce proceedings when solicitors got involved and the two sides that were created. We also talked about the difficulties the pandemic brought to the process. I was touched by how difficult Sam found the initial aftermath and emotional fallout after her husband had left. And we looked at the challenges of healing after a divorce, as well as how rewarding Sam had found it to rediscover herself through working, sex, dating and self-exploration after the divorce. We discussed divorce and mental health and when therapy and or medication can help you cope. And we ended with Sam talking about her own podcast and how it was therapeutic to her and why it's important for two people to be able to talk about something so intimate and personal. If you really loved this episode or want to hear more episodes like this, then please make sure to rate us on your preferred listening platform. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Sam. Hello. It's lovely to... Thanks for that <laughs> intro. It's weird to hear. It is, isn't it? I always think when people introduce you on a podcast and you get all of your kind of things you've done listed out, it always does feel quite weird, doesn't it? Thinking back on that as a collective achievement, but it's just lovely to have you. And I think your podcast is wonderful. We've talked a lot in the past, haven't we, about you know the need for complementary podcasts and looking at the issue of relationship breakup from different angles. So I'm really pleased that you've uh, you've come on our podcast. I wonder, as we start, why don't you tell us a little bit about what led to, you know, the breakup of your marriage and a little bit of background about how you came to be interested in this space of relationship breakup? Yeah, so it's funny you say interested in this space, because I guess I'm I'm not really interested <laughs> in breakup, but I'm I'm interested in the fact that we don't talk about breakups and divorce enough and that people don't know how to react to it. And that's definitely something I found with my own divorce. And in the aftermath of that, I really felt like I had no one to talk to who'd been through something like me, even though actually a lot of people around me had, but didn't open up about it until I did. So I guess I'm interested in the kind of conversation around breakup. But what led to my divorce was, well, where to begin? I hadn't been married for very long, actually. So we were together for eight years overall, but we were only married for about a year and a half in the end. And my dad died on my hen do. I mean, I'm presuming he wasn't out with you at that point, as in he didn't die on your hen do. Yeah. No, imagine. Yeah. He was so shocked by my antics, he died. No, the butler and the buffer had just left. We were in a house in Bath, like an Airbnb with all my friends and my mum, my sister, and my aunties. 
And yeah, I'd been served chocolates by this very sweet butler in the buff who had his bottom out while he served, but we just had nice chats. He was a nice man. And we'd kind of a bottle of Prosecco down, dressed up, ready to go out and got a phone call from the care home my dad was in saying that he died. And it was a complete shock. He was ill and he'd been progressively getting worse, but we definitely didn't think we'd get a call saying he'd died out of the blue. So that was interesting on the sort of Hindu celebrations and then for this terrible thing to happen. And actually one of my best friends afterwards said, your dad died on your Hindu. If you didn't take that as an omen that your marriage wasn't going to go well, like what would you take as an omen? But did you, do you think it did have an impact then, obviously, that some an, an emotional event like that and then trying to start, you know, a married life together, that those two things just came together in in a a way that wasn't sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I'd had worries about the relationship, but I'd sort of always convinced myself that it would be fine. And I was very happy about, you know, being engaged and getting married. And then my dad died and we'd actually had a smaller service in a registry office so he could be there before. So we were officially married by that point, but we didn't feel properly married because we hadn't had the big do with all of our friends. So my dad did see me get officially married. But then in the lead up to the kind of big planned wedding with the dress and all the, you know, sit down dinner and all of that, it was a very weird time because I was excited about the wedding, but also just in that really raw period of, of grief. It was that first year. And I remember on my wedding day, the big do, putting on my wedding dress and crying because my dad wasn't there. So it was it was a very weird day because people always say to me, did you know, because you weren't married for long, like, did you know on your wedding day it wasn't a good idea? But I sort of didn't because I was sad about my dad. So I was sad about my dad and excited for this big thing we'd been planning to celebrate with all of our friends. So I guess at that point, whether I should be doing it didn't really come into it. And I did have a great day and we were very in love. But I think once my dad had died and I'd started grieving properly and that healing process, it really made me come back to who I am and what I value and kind of reevaluate everything in my life and what makes me happy and what's right for me and what might not be right for me. And I do think, you know, and he was going through stuff as well. So it wasn't all down to me at all, but we ended up having a, a conversation. So he brought it up in the end when we were married um, and living in our house together. And at the time I sort of said, he said, oh, should we have a discussion? I don't know if this is, you know, working. And at the time I was like, everything's fine. No, no, no. We'll sort it out. Don't even, yeah, don't mention that again. It's going to be fine. And then I got offered the job as the MC in Magic Mike Live with Channing Tatum. And uh, weird, it's always like these things always happen at once. So I was like, maybe my marriage is going to end, but I'm going to pretend it's fine. And then got offered this huge job, which was like an 18 month contract in the West End. And then I was flown to Vegas to see the show and then spent a week in LA working on the collaborating on the script with Channing Tatum. So I got to have sort of like a week Mm, out of my life, 
which I think was really useful at that stage. So I got this week to just like swan around living my best life in LA and and also working and like doing something that I am good at and feel confident at and, you know, really felt like the essence of like me and what I like to do. And and still when I was away though, I thought, no, everything's fine. We're going to work through it. And then I had this weird experience on the last day in LA where I fell over spectacularly because I have a hearing aid and and I in one ear. My hearing aid had run out of battery, which means that it affects my balance. So I was in LA with like an iced coffee, trying to look all LA, like walking down the street, going shopping. And then I fell over and managed to like throw the iced coffee or I fell out like full frontal forward in a starfish. The iced coffee went everywhere. Like it was outside a pizza shop and the man who owned the pizza shop came out to get me and brought me inside because he was like, whoa, that was a spectacular fall. Are you okay? So it was like (laughs) very dramatic as is my style. So then I'd fallen on my knee and I had this really bad knee and it was like in loads of pain. I was at the airport trying to get painkillers. It was like the worst last day in LA. So I was really looking forward to getting home and, and seeing my ex, but then husband. And I didn't tell him I wanted him to pick me up from the airport. This is, I feel like this is such a married thing, but I expected him to pick me up from the airport because I was hurt and he hadn't read my mind, which annoyed me. So I had to get a cab home, but all this time I was still thinking, oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing him. And I, I, he opened the front door and I just knew it was over. It was, it's very weird just in that split moment. And then I had a cup of tea and a bacon sandwich and then we sat down and had a conversation about breaking up and we both agreed and it was very it was a very nice conversation at the time <laughs> and you know we cried and said that we still love each other but it just doesn't work and said the other one was wonderful and then um he packed a bag and went right. to his mum gosh it's like the ultimate amicable breakup isn't it in that sense then yeah, weird circumstances, but yeah, that that conversation was yeah very amicable and nice. Because yeah, I didn't stay grown up no, and amicable. It doesn't, but that's and that's what I want to talk about because I think that's the interesting thing. If if the worst moment ultimately or the saddest moment is that realization when it's nobody's fault, it's just not going to work, and you can have that conversation to then get put into a process and a system that effectively pits you against each other, that has to be wrong. Because if you're starting from a better place and then the system or the process puts you into, ends you up in a worse place, then that to me is just a no-brainer. We have to change the system. And I know there'll be lots of people listening to this who, you know, didn't have a, um, a, a breakup that could be amicable. And I get that. And we do, you know, talk to lots of people where someone's had an affair or it's a real shock or whatever. And so like, there are different ways obviously of breaking up but in your case really it's a really kind of saddening thing for me that you started off amicably and then stuff something happened you went into this black box called the divorce process and then you come out not as good as you went in tell me what happened well I think it's funny you say at the hardest time for me the hardest time wasn't that conversation and I think it's because it was amicable I think it's when he left and I was in the house alone and I was dealing with 
the ramifications of the decision we'd both just made very amicably where you're like all of a sudden and you've been worrying about what we're going to do about the house and you know all this stuff but all of a sudden it's real and you're like no well actually what am I going to do like we're on a mortgage together we're married we have to do I have to get a lawyer and also just I've lost this person that I've spent eight years of my life with and still love and what does that mean for me now who am I so I found that definitely the hardest time that that first week I didn't like because I think sometimes people hear it's amicable and they're like oh and then you just sort of skipped off and carried on with your life but no I was in bed for a week and my sister came to stay with me and I I just either cry or stare that was my state of being and after three days my sister said to me you must have a shower (laughs) you stink and I love you but you stink (laughs) and then I and that sort of like you need that person. That reminded me like, oh yeah, like I am a human being and I have to do things like clean my clothes and clean my body. I have lots of conversations with people who like struggle eating and that isn't one of my things. So I don't think I struggled eating. That that sort of stayed strong. But yeah, so how did it become not amicable was definitely the divorce proceedings, but it was also the pandemic because I was getting divorced during the pandemic. So it was when it got to that financial stage. And I think by that point, my ex had met someone else. And it's funny, I interviewed someone on on the Divorce Social, my podcast, who said something like, you need to sort it all out before they meet someone else, because then they love someone else. And they're not remembering how much they loved you and how much you shared together. They have a new priority in their life. Well, they, they have a different objective all of a sudden as well financially. So if you're, if it's just the two of you, it's about fairness and making sure everybody's okay. If there's the third person in, that third person, it becomes about the new life with the third person and what money you need to build that new life with the third person. And that's that's fundamentally a very different negotiation to the negotiation you have when you just need to divide everything between you to make sure you both feel kind of fair about it. So yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. Yeah, I think our conversations at the beginning had always been, let's just do everything fairly. Like, I don't want to take anything extra away from you and all of that. And then I think it was when he wanted to buy a house. So I was taking over the mortgage of the house I'm now in because of the pandemic, it was really, really delayed because of all the stuff that came with that. And no one was, they weren't giving out mortgages for a while, banks. So yeah, so there was real delays. And then he wanted to buy a house on his own, but I think for him and his new partner. And I think that was the thing that really started putting stress on the situation. And then there was also the financial declarations and all of that finances stuff just got really difficult and that's when the back and forth between the solicitors yeah, started I was happening. Ask you, so you, you had two separate solicitors so effectively you'd created that two-sided approach and somebody was negotiating on your half. Yeah because actually we did we did want one and I got my solicitor first because my mum was like oh right I've, I've booked a meeting with a solicitor off we go like when she heard and I was like no it's quite soon but okay so I had one first and then I'd explained sort of the process to him after I'd spoken to her 
And he, at that stage, was happy with it all. And so he contacted my solicitor and said, well, can you just do it for both of us? And she said, no, I can't represent you both, which is when he got his solicitor. And then, you know, they're both trying to get the best for their clients. And then there's all this back and forth. Oh, if only you'd known about Amicable. (laughs) I know. But yeah, that is when it got difficult. And it got to the point where I, we were having arguments through the solicitors. And then you forget in the heat of the moment when you're in the argument, you forget that you have to pay your solicitor for all the emails that you're sending and that they're forwarding. And that. so in the end, you know, I had to get in contact with him again. And during that period, I sort of had stopped being in contact with him from very amicable. And we were like speaking on the phone and stuff for the first few weeks. Then we stopped talking completely as the solicitors took over. And then I had to get back in contact so that we could just sort out what was going on. And also because things were definitely being lost in translation. Um, and there were family members on his side that tried to get involved and, you know, it just got Oh, the messy. curse of the well-meaning family member. That's another thing, isn't it? It's really tough when people are genuinely well-meaning, but without any expertise, it, it, it can really make things a lot worse, can't it? And I think you have to learn who to go and get counsel from almost. There are some friends and family members who give good counsel and there are others who love you desperately but are just too close to it or too involved or have had their own experience that then they're trying to effectively play out onto your scenario. And I just think you have to be so careful with who you surround yourself with at this time. Yeah, well, it was it was, it was his family member that contacted me to try and sort the situation out. And I think that's just not a good idea (laughs) (laughs) because no one else knows what's, you know, going on between you and what's, you know, and your history and all of that plays into it. And yeah, if any family members are listening, do not contact the ex and try and sort it out because it's not going to work. But we got there in the end and it was very, very stressful, but we got there in the end and now we've recently started talking again a little bit sort of on messages just checking in which is nice because I there was definitely a point where I thought we were never going to speak or see each other ever again that's interesting isn't it because you don't do you have children together you and your ex no 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 I don't have any children what's the motivation to stay in touch with an ex after a divorce or what value does it bring to your life then to feel that you've got a relationship where you can go back and just message and because I kind of think this is important for people. Yeah I think for me initially I was like we don't need to talk like we've got no connection and which is true isn't it on some level that's that's true yeah lots of people we always say oh well you know if there's no kids involved you can just go your separate ways but still people want to do things amicably so what is it? It is funny, though, because I think people with kids who've been through divorce say things like, oh, if you've not got kids, then you can just go your separate ways and there's no ties and and the divorce. People have said to me, oh, you'll be fine because you don't have kids with the divorce. And actually, everyone's divorce is hard in different ways and it's not a competition. And not that I'm saying it's not hard when you have kids. It's a whole different sort of hard. But it's also hard when you don't have kids and maybe you were together during a time where you might have had them and, you know, you might feel like you missed the boat. I don't necessarily feel like that, but I know a lot of people might and, and have messaged me about that and also 
when you've had children, from my view of obviously not having children, but at least you have something wonderful that came out of that relationship that you'll always be happy about. And actually, if you don't have children together, it's sort of like it could have never happened. Like what? Yes, you've not created anything. But don't you think as well, it's also something about being human. So, and and this, this whole thing where you've, we have the opportunity now because we live a lot longer to have multiple relationships, don't we? So why wouldn't you want to keep some contact, even if you don't want the same relationship with somebody as human beings, we're driven by social cohesiveness and connection and doing the right thing and leaving on good terms feels important in its own right. It doesn't, you don't have to leave on good terms because it's a means to an end necessarily to co-parenting, although obviously that's great if you've got kids and you do. We spend a lot of time talking about that. But I think you there's a desire for people to leave on good terms for the sake of leaving on good terms and being good human beings and not putting bad karma sort of makes it feel like wishy-washy, but not putting bad vibes out there and not hurting each other so that the hurt you goes out and then causes more ripples. Yeah, I just, I guess I don't want to if I can at all ever control it, have someone who doesn't like me or feels hurt by me or in the world. And I know you can't always control that, but I feel like I could have, like this was one thing I did have a hand in. And also I needed to release like some of my anger towards him as well because of all that messiness. And so I think you definitely need a break for a while. And not speaking to him was good for a long time. But for me, I, yeah, I wanted to just let go of that leftover resentment or whatever it is. And at the time I thought, even if he doesn't reply, just me reaching out and saying, hey, I'm sorry I haven't been in touch. Obviously, I was needed some time, but I hope you're doing well. Felt important for me to have and felt like a bit of closure for me as well, because I think you think when you get the divorce document, that's going to be it. And you're going to feel like, ta-da, it's over. And you don't. And sometimes that's when the work begins of like doing some healing and seeing therapists. And and so for me, it was important to reach out. And then, you know, he came back and we had a little just text catch up. And it was just, it just felt like nice. So that if I bumped into him in the street, I'm not like, you know, at the moment we're not like, let's go out for coffee. But if I bumped into him in the street, we wouldn't both be avoiding each other. We'd be like, oh, so it's, hi. it's it feels yeah. resolved in a r- proper, meaningful way, not just like you say, you get the decree absolute and technically it's resolved. But I think you're absolutely right. That's when the emotional work effectively starts, isn't it? When you have to recover. Yeah, I don't know if it feels resolved but it feels more resolved than it was otherwise. So it's still work in progress then. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a kind of an end state in mind then? What what would make it resolved with the Dion? I don't know. I think it is still time, you know, like we got divorced. I came out as bisexual. I had lots of sex, which is great. I was doing some really cool kind of jobs in my career and now I've sort of come out the back of like doing all this healing work and seeing a therapist and, you know, doing things that are good for me and my mental health. And I'm like dating properly, not just shagging. And 
So it still feels like a work in progress in that way of like just me and relationships and how they work for me. And, and he was part of that. So, so when you go through that, so you come out the other side of your sort of the, the process of divorce. And then you said you had this period of shagging and working what was going on? I mean, I don't need to know the details, but <laughs> what was going on for you in terms of part of the journey and the process? Was your comedy propping you up? Were you were you talking about your divorce in your comedy or what was happening for you at that point? So I was doing Magic Mike Live. So I was performing six nights a week in the West End. So I only had one night off. And then quite often we'd go out after the show. So I was just kind of like... I describe it like Braveheart when they're like, freedom. That's the thing that carried me through that period. I was just like, oh my God, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to tell someone what time I'm coming home. You know, if I fancy someone and they fancy me, we can have sex. Like that's allowed. I'm not in a long-term relationship anymore. You know, people were chatting me up and that was exciting. And so it was just like, go with the flow, live in the moment time and obviously I was safe and things like that but it was just a real I'm alive I'm spontaneous and I'm living in the now time and it was really fun for a while I mean I got tired got really tired after 18 months of that but yeah it was really fun I was in a brilliant show I wasn't talking about divorce because the show was scripted but I was doing stand-up comedy women would come and see the show and say they felt empowered and like send me messages that, you know, they'd done this in their life because they saw the show and because I, you know, made a joke about this. And it just felt really nice. And yeah, it was fun. And then I needed to sleep and the pandemic happened. So I got to sleep, albeit in a slightly more closed off way than I'd imagined. So that was your natural break at that point. That was you'd you'd had your hedonism and now you had your rest. Then just before you go on to tell me a little bit about the pandemic sleeping side of things, what about, did you find it easy to be on your own? Because a lot of people come out of a relationship and they have to almost learn what it's like to go out for dinner on their own, go to the cinema on their own, you know, all of those things. And that can be quite hard, but it doesn't sound like, I don't know, did did you struggle with being a one instead of a two? I wasn't really ever on my own because I was, you know, at work six, yeah, I say six nights a week, but, you know, you get there in the afternoon. So I'd sleep, wake up, eat, go to work and be surrounded by a cast and then we'd go out. And on my one day off, you know, I'd see a friend or see a family member. So I think... I was putting off experiencing being alone because I was never alone during that time. And that's why when the pandemic hit, it was extreme because all of a sudden I was very alone. You know, I was living alone. I wasn't working surrounded by, you know, 20 other people. I wasn't seeing my friends. And so it was real like in the deep end, this is what alone really is and how you're going to cope with it. And that's why I got a dog. I was going to say, so how did you cope with it? (laughs) It was really hard, but I was seeing a counsellor. I was doing things like trying to make myself go out for a walk. 
trying to do yoga, trying to meditate, you know, all those things that you try and do. I'm not saying I did them every day, but, you know. So the, the typical self-care stuff that, that you, you know, you, even if you only try it a couple of times, the, the act of doing them, yeah, yeah. Having a bath. I'm not, I can't, I just, I like the idea of having a bath, but you just get cold in the water and shrivel up and then you have to top it up again. I feel like I'm not very good at baths. I like a shower. I'm too impatient for the bath because I sit there and I think, right, I'm going to relax. And you're just like, right, what do I need to do next? And just it defeats the object, doesn't it? So I think you're right, quick shower and get on with the next thing. <laughs> think about my to-do list. No, but weirdly during the pandemic, I got really into craft. So I've always knitted and I love knitting and I have anxieties. So it really helps with my anxiety. And so during the pandemic, I did loads of things like embroidery. I like did DIY around the house, like taught myself new skills. I like did stuff in the garden, painted the walls, painted my kitchen pink, which is a wonderful moment. Felt like a release. And now I feel like I'm really good at being on my own. I think that was, it was hard and I cried a lot and you know, called my mum and I'm really lucky that my family live close by. So when you were allowed bubbles, I could have them in my bubble. And I don't think we've ever seen each other so much, but it was, it was lovely. And then when I came out of that, I got a dog and that's not to say I don't still love being on my own, but having little custard, you know, when you come home, it wagging their tail, pleased to see you. It's a nice addition to living on my own but I love it now do you think that struggle to be on your own or to find that sense of self do you think that's inevitable when you go through a relationship breakup that kind of is it gonna I don't I I try and think about ways of how we can prevent divorce or separation having an impact on people's mental health but then I, I don't know whether it's part of the growing as a person process well, I think for me, I look at like healthy relationships that I hopefully want in the future and they would include alone time for me and for my partner. And I think if you had a relationship like that, maybe it wouldn't be as hard. I mean, breaking up is always hard, but maybe it wouldn't be as hard to be alone because you'd have more experience of it. And actually now, you know, I'm, I'm dating someone one person. <laughs> and the idea that like one day I might not be able to live alone really scares me because now I love living alone. So you can go the other way in it as well. But yeah, I think it's, I'm definitely taking things slower now in the dating game than I ever have before and making sure I have enough time for me and for myself as well as seeing the other person. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you talk a lot about you know, your mental health, your journey. How did you get to the point where you kind of recognized you needed some help beyond the yoga or the baths or the whatever it was? What was the crunch point there to actually saying, right, I need to take charge of this and I, I need something more? I started my medication, I think when I was still in my marriage, I think it was around the time my dad died, or I think it was just before when my dad was ill. So I had my two grandparents die within six months and then my dad die within a year of them and then getting married and divorced and buying a house and taking over a mortgage. So lots happened. Get on your plate then. <laughs> yeah, it was just really nice to go to someone like a counsellor and like a GP and say all the things that had happened to you. And at the time you were like, well, this is just life, isn't it? This is just what happens. And for someone to say, that is a lot of things that you're dealing with. 
And just hearing another human say that was amazing. I was like, you know what? Yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, the fact that I'm just still borderline okay is a miracle. So I've never really been, I've been around a lot of people who've taken antidepressants and, you know, and they've really helped them. So it wasn't really a a difficult decision for me. I was worried about side effects and like how it affect my creativity and stuff, but I'm on sertraline, which it just really takes the edge off my anxiety. And it means that I don't like worry all the time. And in the past I had panic attacks and I mean, I was in a car accident that wrote off the car and then, but I was fine and everyone in the car was fine. And then four days later, I had a panic attack because it can happen like that. So it was, I, I burnt some toast and I had a panic attack and I was like, why am I having this? And then someone in my family was like, you're in a car accident four days ago. I was like, yeah. And at times I wouldn't want to leave the house and I'd be scared of, of being in crowds, which is people think is mind boggling with me, obviously, because I'm a performer and a comedian, but you know, I can feel like that. So for me, taking the anti-anxiety medication just took the edge off and just, I remember taking it and thinking, oh my God, is this how people live? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Just like not anxious all the time, just like they're just okay. Like I wasn't like, I mean, actually, at the beginning, you are like, oh, my God, everything's amazing because <laughs> you've got this new drug in your system. But then you're just like, fine. And it was so nice to just be fine. But I did up my medication during my divorce and the pandemic. And and again, that was just a conversation with my GP of like, things are getting a bit unmanageable again. And yeah, and I just, I feel very happy on my medication whilst trying to do lots of things that kind of help me but I do notice when I start feeling better it's the endless cycle when you're feeling good for a while you like forget to take your pills and then you have a day where you feel awful and you're like oh why do I feel awful oh yeah because I've forgotten to take my pills and it's like have I forgotten or is it some weird self-sabotage I don't know but anyway I'm still on it and it still really helps me and it sounded it sounds like it was an enabler to be able to get through you know, the emotional roller coaster that is a breakup and a divorce and everything else as well. It sounds like it enabled you to navigate that pretty skillfully. Yeah. And I think so often you're like, oh, oh, people go through this all the time. I should be able to cope with it. Why can't I cope with it? There's something wrong with me. And actually, no, it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. Like for me, it's up there with the death of my dad, you know, and if anything can help you get through, obviously legal things, please. But if anything can help you get through, then do it. Like take the help. I think so often we're like, I have to do it all on my own. And you don't like, you can reach out and there are specialists. And, you know, if you can't afford to pay for a counselor, you can get it on the NHS. Your GP is there for you. You know, it's really important to ask for help and to take it. And that's something that I struggled with, but definitely learned. No, I, I think that's right. And sometimes it's about knowing where to go for the help, isn't it? But you don't have to do this on your own. There is a lot more understanding and a lot more help out there. And trying to find it is an absolute key thing. And there's two amazing yeah, podcasts absolutely. that you can listen to called The Divorce Podcast and The Divorce Social. Exactly. Your friend, <laughs> if you were going through this, or your friends, I'm, I was exactly onto that subject so you you come through this divorce you've 
got yourself back on track. What and how and why the Divorce Social? So I started the Divorce Social before I'd got myself on track. So the whole time during my 18-month extravaganza, sexual explosion, I was thinking, I had this idea for the Divorce Social. Um, and people said to me, no one wants to listen to two people going on about their divorces. And so I was sort of taking that on board. But I mean, selfishly, it was kind of for me because I was like, I don't know anyone going through this. I'd just like to talk to some other people. And I've had, you know, podcasts before and I thought, I'll just make it mainly for me. And it's, you know, something to keep me busy because this was so the pandemic started. I was at home all the time. I wasn't working six days a week anymore. So I had the time. I thought it'd be a nice project for me and it'll probably help me personally, even if no one listens. So I'll just do it. So I I did it purely for that reason and just found I was and also I love to talk to people and interview people and hear people's stories. Like that's one of my favorite things to do is talk and listen. And I was missing that during the pandemic. So I just started it and then, you know, on my own on Zoom, tweeted about it, got a lovely um, friend of mine to edit it because I'm not so great at that, tweeted about, put it on, you know, up on the internet, tweeted about it. And then it sort of went crazy. And I think we had a hundred thousand listens in, you know, the first few episodes. So it's quite a meteoric rise that, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, it it was crazy because someone, yeah, actually said to me, no one wants to listen to that. So I was so surprised because with everything else, I always like check in, like with my children's books, I'm always like, how many books have we sold? You know, I'm always checking on like my stand up shows. I'm like, how many tickets we've sold? And it's funny because with this, I just didn't check because I thought it doesn't matter how many listens, like, and then, yeah, I, I remember checking and being like, oh, my goodness, what? That's a lot of listens. And then it just carried on from there. And I started getting lots of messages and emails from people saying, thank you, which, you know, felt like an amazing side effect of me being selfish and wanting to talk to some people. And that was my thing as well. There are loads of great podcasts out there that help people that speak to a lot of experts and things like that. And for me, I just wanted to be a divorced woman speaking to other divorced people or people that have had like really intense breakups. And, you know, it wasn't about advice necessarily. It was just about sharing your story. And yeah, we're on the eighth series. What is the power of sharing your story then? So what is it that you think that it gives us? Because I I love listening to it as well. And it is, you're right, if you always think no one's going to, no one wants to listen to two people talking about the divorce because it's boring. It's really nice for them, but it's just dull for everybody else. But it's not. And what is it that that hooks you in? I suppose it's that need to, I'm going to answer my own question now. It's that need to, to know that you're not alone and that people's surface stories might be different, but the underlying emotions are often quite similar, aren't they, in terms of feeling a collective? Well, it's funny. We we actually had a tweet when I interviewed Jackie Smith, who's former Home Secretary. We actually had a tweet that said, it was a guy and he was like, I'm so bad at procrastinating from studying that me, a single 20-year-old man, has just listened to two women talk about their divorces for 45 minutes and I don't regret a second of it. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> and I just thought, 
that that's the best sales pitch yeah. ever. It's I just feel like I start talking to people about divorce and we end up talking about so many aspects of life and you know, a lot of people message me and say, I'm not divorced, but I'm single, but I listen because I enjoy it. And I think, you know, it's called the divorce social, but it isn't just about divorce. It's about life and being human and emotions. And yeah, we we just go off on, on so many topics and I get to talk to some incredible people about their experiences. And people are so honest because also I think a lot of the time, especially when you are getting divorced or getting a breakup or a bereavement or whatever it is, no one says to you, please tell me about your experience and then gives you an hour to talk about it. It's so rare. Like, you know, even your friends, they'll give you like the first 15 minutes and then, and then it's like, okay, now do me. I'm doing this at work, you know? So actually I think for some of my guests, they're just like, it's like a sigh of relief of like, oh, just get to talk about it. And, you know, you'll notice from some of the episodes, I don't talk very much because that person just needs to, you know, tell their story and I'm fine. You know, that's, I'm not here here to interrupt. I'm here to allow that. So yeah, I think it's just hearing from other human beings is nice. I love the idea of some 20 year old trying to do his revision. And <laughs> I was like, maybe do a dissertation on divorce. And he was like, I'm studying economics. And I was like, well, that is actually yeah. very relevant. <laughs> there you go. The economics of divorce. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> yes. well, welcome to the divorce world. Yeah. So that, that was a fun one. But yeah, it's, I'm honestly, it's been, it started off as a sort of project during lockdown to help me passion project yeah and it's turned into I mean I feel like it's got a bit of a life of its own now I'm like recording episodes and I'm like am I even am I in control of what's happening now but yeah it's been such a privilege to talk to all the people I have and for them to share their stories including you so thank you very much and well it's it's been up there on hasn't it on the like top podcasts awards it's it's incredible it's got such a huge listenership yeah we got two award nominations we were number one relationship podcast in itunes Mm -hmm. times podcast of the week so yeah i think yeah i mean thank you to everyone who listens and i always try and bring a bit of humor as well because i am a comedian and i don't want it all to be doom and gloom and life is ups and downs so i try to make my podcast up and down as well (laughs) definitely do it's from being on the other side of it and being interviewed it's definitely a fabulous experience and a wonderful opportunity like you say just to reflect on your own life so yeah well, thank brilliant. you for coming on oh, it's a pleasure listen we're coming to the end of time I'm, i could sit here all afternoon as, <laughs> and, and chat it's, it's really fascinating to hear your story and to hear about what a wonderful resource the divorce social is and you know the the life it's gaining and the traction it's getting and and the comfort and joy it's bringing to people so thank you for doing that where can people find out a bit more about you i have a website samanthabaines.com and baines is b-a-i-n-e-s and that's got all the information about my children's books and my hearing loss and deafness activism and acting and stuff like that and then i'm on social media at samantha baines on twitter and instagram and facebook and tiktok all of them fantastic and who knows how long we're all going to be on Twitter for. Well, <laughs> but exactly. for the moment we're there. But I'm on the <laughs> yes. others, so it's fine. It's all covered. Okay. And obviously the yeah. podcast is called The Divorce Social and is available on every podcast platform. Fantastic.
And of course, you can find out more about me. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Kate underscore daily. You can hear about new podcast episodes by following at divorce underscore podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of The Divorce Podcast, you can follow us on thedivorcepodcast.com. And as Sam said, available on all podcast platforms. Sam, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thank you.